Hey, it's Nancy. Before we begin today, I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Crime Beat early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. Today, I want to introduce you to my colleague Erica Vela's podcast, What Happened To?, and share an episode you might like. On this global news podcast, Erica talks to the people at the heart of the most gripping news stories that captured our attention, including the fire at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris or the Australian bushfires. In this story, Erica revisits the days that followed a deadly blast that killed 214 people in 2020. This is What Happened To. The ground shakes. Smoke and dust fill the air while debris and ash fall from the sky. An explosion in one of the largest and busiest ports on the eastern Mediterranean. And minutes later, another one. This time bigger, more violent. The blast killed hundreds, injured thousands, and shocked people around the world. Two years have passed, and for many living in Lebanon, this tragedy was yet another massive hit when they were already struggling from a depressed economy and deep financial crisis. I'm journalist Erica Bella, and this is Global News What Happened to the Beirut Explosion. The pictures are hard to forget. Many of you probably remember seeing the massive plume of smoke with a tint of red as it swallowed up neighborhoods in its path. The blast shook all of Lebanon, and it was felt in Turkey, Syria, Palestine, and Israel, as well as parts of Europe. They heard it more than 240 kilometers away in Cyprus. United States Geological Survey detected it as a seismic event with a magnitude of 3.3. In fact, it's considered one of the most powerful artificial non-nuclear explosions in history. But to really understand what happened on August 4th, 2020, we need to take a look at the political structure and financial crisis that preceded the disaster. Ruby Dagar is a Lebanese professor of international development with the University of Ottawa. She said after Lebanon gained its independence in 1943, a sectarian system was created. And it was a verbal pact. It was never written down. So the presidency would belong to a Maronite Christian, which now belongs to the Catholic Church. Um, so it sort of now becomes a section of the Catholic Church. Um, the prime ministership belongs to a Sunni Muslim. And then the speaker and head of parliament belongs to the Shia Muslim. And so this was a way to make sure that everybody's sort of represented. According to Ruby, these three groups don't represent all the communities within Lebanon. But appointments to public office and the army also follow this system, with few accommodations made for others. And so what the state ended up being, and the government de facto after that ended up being, is that it became a space 
where one group protects itself against another group and not a space where you build public policy for the population, not a space where you have a political party that wins elections and then sets policies for the next four or five, six, whatever years, depending on the system that you have. It was really a state where, you know, who gets to control what ministries that has the most power? And, you know, if we give it to that group, then we have to balance the power for the other group. And really it becomes sort of dividing and carving up the state. And then basically building a pseudo state structure for each community where you serve the people. Ruby said this political structure causes the elite to take care of their own people, leaving much of the Lebanese population behind. Then, after the civil war in 1990, Lebanon was affected by further economic issues. Following some of the um, established sort of programs by the IMF, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, the economy of Lebanon became one of service delivery and one of financial transactions. So we were looking really at an economy that was banking sector, and service delivery. And we completely ignored the productive capacity. Up until the Civil War, Ruby said the country had strong agricultural and manufacturing sectors, but both were decimated by the changes. You add to it the influx of the refugees from the various countries, which put pressure on prices, and the really badly handled policies related to refugees in Lebanon by the Lebanese government, by the United Nations, by the donors, by the World Bank, by the International Monetary Fund, you get to a point where there was so much stress put on the Lebanese economy. Mismanagement on the part of the government, including when it comes to the financial sector, doing things and, and you know, uh, that are under the radar per se, exposing Lebanon to significant financial risks. We really started to see a weakening of the Lebanese economy, a drop in the GDP. Uh, we started to see pretty much people not having access to jobs. We have uh, a significantly educated population, yet very little jobs for those who were educated. Then, in 2017, Lebanon began its descent into the current financial hardships, which would lead to a crisis of unimaginable proportions. You couldn't access your banks. You couldn't access the money that you kept in your banks. And the World Bank, I think, called it like the, the one of the worst financial collapses since the 1800s, mid-1800s. Um, and so you, you had a situation where people had money, had millions, for example, in certain cases, and could only take out $100 every week, for example. right? And so that precipitated for a further collapse. Ruby says the breaking point came when the Lebanese government wanted to impose a tax on WhatsApp users in an effort to drum up revenue and stifle the looming economic crisis. Really, the straw that broke the camel's back was the government saying to people, we're going to tax you on text that you send on WhatsApp because you're not using the phones. And we normally charge you for phones and you're not using those phones, so we're going to tax you. So corruption which was significant in Lebanon, all this money leaving, uh, the leaders are getting really rich and sending their money abroad. So no money staying in Lebanon to be really, you know, working the economy. All of that, plus a lack of productivity in Lebanon, the issues with tourism, the pressure from all the influx of refugees and people on the pricing led to people just being overwhelmed and angry. Elias Terebe lives in Lebanon. 
He used to work for Lebanon's leading English-language newspaper and remembers the October 2019 protests clearly as the frustration and anger really bubbled over. Many people didn't have access to their own money, their savings, and because of it, they couldn't afford basic essential needs like food or even medication. They took away our savings. They took away our uh, our hard-earned our hard-earned money. It was gone. Literally, it was gone. That was it. So that basically triggered the whole thing, and people were queuing at banks in front of tellers and ADMs just so so they can withdraw. At the time, they were allowed to draw something around like two hundred dollars a week, like. For all they care, like you could have $1 million in your bank account or you can have $2,000, you were just the same to them. I mean, you were allowed like $200 a week and that was it. Some experts say the financial crisis in 2019 saw almost 90% of Lebanon's population living at the poverty level. The economic crisis put Lebanon's hospital system in a precarious situation, According to Human Rights Watch, the government wasn't able to pay both private and public hospitals. The lack of supplies and equipment meant the population didn't have access to certain urgent medical procedures or surgeries. Then came the COVID-19 pandemic in March 2020, and the increased pressure pushed Lebanon's health system to the brink of collapse. And it was about to get worse. Elias Terebe was at home on August 4th, 2020. It was the afternoon. I had like a late lunch with a friend. He left. I was sitting in the living room, which was overseen, literally overseen like from my balcony and uh, the, 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 the port. I was watching TV, I remember. And there was the first explosion. I ran to the, uh, to the balcony and there was like actual smoke coming out of the silo, next to the silos. Uh, I knew there was an explosion in the port. So I started filming with my phone, my camera, and uh, I thought, like, I can I can send it back to the office, to the newspaper. They can run it on, on our online website or something. And um, after a couple of minutes of filming, the big thing happened. There was a huge, like, like, like some sort of a crescendo in, in, in light. So it started glowing, 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 glowing harder with sparkles, lots of sparkles that were like flying around and glowing, glowing to a point and then boom! That was the big thing. So there was some sort of a crescendo in it. He was in shock, but jolted back to reality as his world crumbled around him. I had a friend of mine, she was staying over I remember uh, the whole thing collapsing. It was a two-stories house that I had. So the whole thing collapsed on us. Had we been on the balcony outside, we would have fell down because there were no more balconies left. So we were on the inside uh, of the uh, living room. Yeah, I fell. I fell under actually one of the walls actually collapsed and it stood. It was, it was holding by, by a single beam uh, had it not for that being, I would have been crushed under that wall. The only thing I remember is waking up a couple of seconds after the explosion. I can still taste the whole uh, uh, gravel thing <laughs> under my tongue. So um, 
the first thing uh, I thought about is where the fuck is my friend? I started looking for her. Uh, she actually had her thigh slit from one side to the other. She was literally, she was white at that point, the amount of blood she shed. So I grabbed her, I held her, I tried to press like between my elbows on her leg to, to keep it from bleeding. I had to run over like the whole thing, uh, like the whole wreckage and whatever, uh, go across the street, go to the parallel street above, there was a, uh, a Red Cross station over there. So I dropped her off with the ambulance. They took her to uh, the hospital. I had to walk for like 15 kilometers to reach the nearest hospital that would receive me. And still there were no places. I had I got a, a hold of a, of a guy who can lend me his phone. I called my brother. He picked me up from that uh, hospital's um, ER. And he drove me to another hospital where my late father used to be treated there. We called some of his doctors. They told us just Get, come here and we'll rush into the head. I, I got stitches all over my head, uh, my face, uh, my arm. It was a one-sided thing. Uh, my chest, my leg, rounded up to around like 120 stitches, 122 stitches. Elias lost his home and was badly injured, but he was lucky. He survived. Gina Afaish was working as a reporter with Al Hura TV in Lebanon. At first, I thought it was some sort of an explosion. Then we thought, maybe it's an earthquake. Can you imagine that? But because of how much dust was in the air, like yellow dust, we thought it had to be an earthquake. But then we thought it must be an explosion because of the powerful sound that we heard. We were really just guessing as we were watching people driving backwards and taking U-turns with their cars on the highway. Uh, so my team and I did the same and took a U-turn. And then we were shocked as we got close to the port. Honestly, I I really don't like recalling those scenes, especially as a reporter. But I will tell you some of the scenes I witnessed on the ground. I saw people running on the streets in panic, covered with blood, running on the streets, injured people crying for help. People were screaming and calling on us to help them. And I was telling them, I am a media personnel. Uh, I didn't have my vests at the time. They were like, stop, please drive us to the hospital. Why aren't you helping us? I need to take my brother to the hospital. I was telling them uh, that we were a team of journalists and asked what was going on. But no one responded to my questions. We drove closer to the wheat silos, just a couple of kilometers away from where the explosion has happened. As we got closer, one would think the area was impacted by an earthquake. An earthquake. Nothing was left of the nearby buildings. They were all ruined to the ground. The place turned into a real battlefield and... We couldn't know. There were a lot of speculations. Um, so I started getting ready for a live hit with the channel I work for when I heard people telling us to shelter as civil defense members were coming in for aiding the injured. Gina has been a journalist for almost 20 years, but nothing could have prepared her for what she saw that day. 
What made it harder is that there were one explosion after another, only minutes apart. So in a few minutes, there were two explosions. I saw civilians pulling people from under the rubble. Bodies were being pulled. Also cars. I saw cars that were on the highway, which turned into a pile of destruction and a huge cloud of white dust. People lost their consciousness and forgot about the pandemic and its measures. At that time, let me remind you, Lebanon used to report high daily cases of COVID-19, like an average of 2,000 cases every day. People forgot about all of that. Take us to the hospital. Where's my brother? Where's my dad? There were no masks, nothing. People were in shock, just trying to save each other while not knowing what was going on. I only focused on the humanitarian aspect of the crisis. While I I have done live hits, took witness testimonies and described the situation, the impact on the Lebanese people was unbearable. We're talking about the third biggest explosion in human history after the bombing of Hiroshima. We're talking about victims, tens of thousands of injuries. We're talking about casualties, destruction of one third of the Lebanese capital, Beirut. She worked through the chaos. Honestly, on that day, I could not sleep. I arrived to my place between 1 and 2 a.m. in the morning, of course, mentally and physically exhausted that I couldn't sleep. I just couldn't. Maybe I fell asleep for two hours close to dawn, woke up at 6 a.m. and then got ready as usual for another field reporting day from the surrounding areas and neighborhoods of the explosion. I was covering how people were licking their wounds, checking on whatever was left of their homes and belongings. We're talking about Beirut here. Hundreds of historical houses and buildings that formed the archaeological character of the city all have been wiped off the ground. People who had houses left were barely remains of walls and skeletons. They were coming to check on, and their biggest question was, Who will compensate us? In the immediate aftermath, speculation swirled. Some thought the explosion was an Israeli airstrike or fireworks. But early on, experts pointed to the color of the large plume of smokes as a hint that the blast was likely due to high quantities of ammonium nitrate. We were following leaks, eyewitness testimonies, security sources and authorities, army investigations. But of course, on that day, there were no army investigations yet. So we relied on eyewitnesses and describers from inside the port who were talking about silo number 12, which was a huge warehouse containing different goods, including those explosive materials. Um, Also, the civil defense chief came and toured the area and gave a statement. Of course, those were all preliminary information awaiting official confirmation. Ammonium nitrate is often used in fertilizers. It's also used for controlled mining explosions, but sometimes people use it for more nefarious things. You might remember that it was used by Timothy McVeigh in 1995 in the Oklahoma City bombing, which killed 168 people and injured hundreds more. Experts say the chemical compound acts as a source of oxygen that can accelerate the burning of other materials. 
Over 2,700 tons of ammonium nitrate was improperly stored in a warehouse in Beirut's port. Just to put that into perspective, that's more than 1,000 times more ammo nitrate than Timothy McVeigh used in his bomb, and that destroyed a nine-story building. In Beirut, the August 2020 explosion killed over 200 people, injured thousands, and displaced tens of thousands. But the dangerous chemical arrived at the Mediterranean port seven years earlier in 2013 on a ship journeying from the country of Georgia. Media reports say the ship made an unplanned detour and stopped in the Beirut port to pick up heavy road equipment to drop off in Jordan before continuing on to deliver the ammonium nitrate to a manufacturer in Mozambique. But the ship never left Beirut. The captain, Boris Prokashev, told Reuters that they tried to safely load the cargo but didn't have room. And then came a dispute over port fees that lasted several months. The fertilizer was eventually unloaded off the ship and stored in a warehouse by the dock. Now, there were verbal and written warnings about the harmful impacts of this ammonium nitrate that made their way through Lebanon's governmental institutions as well as the army. But nothing was ever done. It sat there for several years until it exploded in 2020. Meanwhile, a day after the explosions, Elias went back to what was left of his home and found it was ransacked. While he was upset about being robbed, he couldn't help but think about how lucky he was to be alive. I'm not a religious person. I'm a very spiritual person, though. I believe there were forces at work that, at that moment because nobody was meant to Nobody at that proximity was meant to survive this. We're not built to survive such a thing. There were elements at work, I believe in that strongly, that for some reason, I don't know why, we were safe. Nobody should have to go through this. Nobody, nobody. I mean, I've lived through the whole war and at no point such amount of devastation took place in that area. At no point, with all the shelling, the bombing, the whatever, at no point throughout the whole war, this area has been that ravaged and damaged. Never. While he considered himself lucky, he had lost everything. So when I got home, I was like, yeah, I'm going to take a shower. Okay, I go and I take a shower. I realize um, I don't even have a towel. Grief was quickly followed by anger. It's the one place where you get to go to whenever you want to stay away from anything else, whenever you want to stay safe, wherever you want to go back to your element and just, I don't know, recharge, just whatever. You're not even safe there. You're not, I mean, it's, it's, it's rape. It's violation. And you feel violated on all levels at that point. Professor Ruby Dagar walked me through what happened next. 
when the explosion happened, um, there was this, this, this disbelief the first few days of, oh my God, what happened? This is the worst thing that we've ever witnessed. And, and people across the religious divide were affected. So it wasn't like one community over another per se. And so that galvanized a lot of people to demonstrate, go to the streets, ask for accountability, put a lot of pressure on the government. People in Lebanon took to the streets once again to protest, and some turned violent. On August 10th, less than a week after the explosion, Lebanon's Prime Minister, Hassan Diab, announced his resignation along with members of his cabinet. Diab blamed the corrupt politicians who came before him for the onslaught of issues the country was facing. The problem with the resignation was that while they resigned officially, they remained in government. He was in a caretaker position. Obviously, cannot make any decisions, cannot vote for anything, cannot make any policies or whatever. But he was in there from August 2020 until July 2021. So there was this entire period where basically everything was sort of put on hold. During this time, Diab was charged with negligence in connection with the explosion. Three other former ministers were also charged. Leaked documents revealed that several high-ranking officials, including Diab, were aware of the ammonium nitrate being stored in Beirut's port. We know that at least a week or so before the explosions, there was a report that landed on his desk to say, these are going to explode. There's a problem here. This is extremely dangerous. We need to work and we need to fix it. He sent it to some experts uh, in the ministries or something of that sort also tried to send it to the president. The president returned it back saying, well, this is not following official channels or something of that sort. There's something officially wrong with the process and sent it back. Uh, But he was fully aware with this report. And he actually got debriefed by some people to say, yes, this is a problem and it's about to become a huge problem for all of us, right? So he he was quite aware of not only the presence, but the, the potential of an explosion. Victims of the blast and their loved ones demanded an independent investigation. And on August 14th, 10 days after the explosion, Lebanon's High Judicial Council appointed Judge Fadi Sawan to lead the investigation. And then as he was moving forward and as he was trying to uh, interview people um, and and looking at really the corruption uh, behind everything, many people started sort of questioning his capacity and and shedding doubt on it. And I remember a lot of sort of social media uh, uh, posts saying, oh, look, he's, you know, he's, he likes this person. Oh, look, he's friends with that person. Oh, look, he's not doing his job properly. This is how he's compromising the investigation. So it's hard for me to tell you whether all of it was rumors or whether there was some truth to it. Some people have kind of expressed some of their concerns with the way he was handling the investigation, that he wasn't going hard enough. He wasn't going far enough. Criticism and public outcry came to a head. And in February 2021, Sawan was replaced by a new investigative judge, Tarek Bitar. He's shown to be a person who would do his job, if if I can put it bluntly this way. He doesn't care who you belong to, which group. He doesn't care which party. Uh, You know, he doesn't care if he's getting heat for this or heat for that. He will uh, ask you questions if there's a need for him to ask you questions. And that 
has really caused a lot of tension and stress by a lot of people because they haven't been able to stop him. They haven't been able to put limits on him. And so the people who've been unhappy with him um, have literally uh, uh, tried to stall. Ruby said the investigation process has been limited by the previous government. Uh, Diab uh, uh, was... was um, was charged with negligence um, and in, in, in the explosion. And he sued Tariq Bitar to stop him, right? Uh, he's been sued by the other, I think all of the three or two out of the three former ministers who were also charged um, with, the, with negligence for the explosion. He's been sued by others as well. So it's along the way, uh, the only way that they figured that they can stop Tariq Bitar is by suing him. So what happens is every time they sue, everything has to stop. And then it has to go through the court process. And then the judgment comes out. And if the judgment says, okay, keep going, then he keeps investigating. And the and the really interesting part about it is it, it we're still in the investigative phase. Like he's not charged, like he's not, you know, he's not in a in a in a in a, in a court, uh, you know, um, where the case is ongoing. He's still in the investigative phases and he's being stopped all along the way. In October 2021, five people were killed in a protest in Beirut against Bitar and his investigation. It was organized by Hezbollah and the Amal movement. Their primary concern when they went there was to, to, to show discomfort with what Judge Bitar was doing, Tariq Bitar, and, and the fact that he was sort of He's politicized because he's attacking one group and not looking at everybody else, right? Which, in, in effect, he's actually looked at everybody. He's pretty much, you know, uh, analyzed or, or studied or and looked at documentation for every minister who's been in, in positions that have dealt with this. So gone from every single political party pretty much who's been in that position. So it's not one or the other. Um, but there's a perception that he's harsher on one group than he is on the others. And so that was sort of one of the reasonings for going into Shia and, 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 and you know, what the, the street fights that happened. So you can see that there's a significant amount of tension and stress um, and, and they can't seem to block him. While the local political squabbling continued, there were promises from the international community to get boots on the ground and help those in need. Mohamed Faki is a Lebanese-Canadian businessman known as the founder of the Middle Eastern chain Paramount Fine Foods. He's also a philanthropist and was devastated to hear about the explosion in Beirut because his family lived there. And my sister sent me a picture of my parents' house all destroyed and the ceiling fell and we're not even any, we're not close to the uh, explosion. She told me my mama flew off her chair and hit her shoulder. Like the wood that decorating the ceiling fell on my dad and he got injured a little bit. I, I went really straight to a darker place because I didn't know what was happening. He immediately thought of raising funds. And we got together, all of us at Lebanese, the, the Lebanese coalition, the Canadian Lebanese coalition, and we said, let's bring some CEOs together and start raising money because we don't know what to do. Canada stood up for Lebanon and stood up with a better message than France and the US and anyone. We sent a message of love without agenda. We didn't want, we didn't have political interest. We didn't have financial interest. We had a humanitarian interest. Mohammed went back to Lebanon a year after the explosion. 
He said the $55 million in donations helped restore several destroyed homes. But the desperation is ongoing for many. He spoke about one woman he met with on his last trip. She said, take the house and give me a Canadian visa. She said, thank you, you fixed the house, but I just don't want to live here anymore because I don't know what tomorrow will happen and if the house will stay or not. But most importantly, I don't want to get hurt. I don't want my daughter to get And the people of Lebanon today are still struggling with the same issues, medication, food, being able to pay their bills, being able to pay a school fee for their children to go to school. A lot of kids that I know of aren't able to go to school because of shortage of money to pay the fees. Not that they didn't have money. Even if they had the money, they have no access to it. And new government is not a new hope. It actually means the same thing happening again at the same time. And many years are gone. Many people dream are gone. You know, Lebanese never search in the garbage for food. But we saw that on a lot of videos. Lebanese always been exposed because of the location of Lebanon geographically. They're traders and they do business and they travel the world and they bring the product to Lebanon. Tourism is great. It's all gone. Nobody wants to be there. Nobody wants to spend a penny there. Hotels were empty when I went. It's really nothing. Nothing left. I mean, they're living because they have no other option but to stay. Lebanon is now in limbo. The dire economic crisis that started several years prior to the explosion was exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Ruby says in July 2021, Najem Makati took over from the disgraced former prime minister, Hassan Diab. He was only able to form a government in September 2021. So you can think about it as sort of, you know, from August 2020 to September 2021, there was no functioning government, no functioning state. Nothing that could really be done, um, officially speaking. Um, and then when he established the government, when Najib Mikati established the government, set it up and, you know, they, 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 they swore everybody in, it was only, they only really pretty much uh, uh, worked until October. October 2021, there was a paralysis in the government again. So you really have a government that really hasn't been working the economic crisis is worsening. And there are no official details around a potential bailout from the IMF. To add another layer of complication, an election is supposed to happen in March of 2022, but that could be delayed by up to a year. So what does this all have to do with the explosion? If you remember, prior to the blast, Most in Lebanon didn't have access to their bank accounts and savings. This means that almost two years later, they can't rebuild because of the ongoing economic crisis. They can't buy glass for windows or other supplies. They can't replace vehicles that were destroyed in the explosion. They're essentially prohibited from moving on. With the government also at a standstill, There are public projects that have been delayed. Some schools, for example, have yet to be rebuilt. Ruby says it's people in countries like Canada who have helped to financially support relatives living in Lebanon. Everything is literally going backwards. The services are not there. The medicine is not there. Uh, You know, really, it's the diaspora that's allowing Lebanon to continue functioning in some of the transfers, um, diaspora transfers and transfers of money. 
Elias Terebe says he's still affected by the impact of that day. I started to notice, like, I'm fucking edgy. Like, the smallest thing would irritate me. Like, a couple of friends would take me out for a drink, would be sitting outside, like, in the afternoon, like, sitting, like, good weather, sitting outside, grabbing a drink. The waiter would be, like, cleaning the tables next to us, moving the table. The table would hit or would bump into another table and make a sound. I'd literally jump. That's how bad it was. Like, the slightest noise would tick me. He says he wants accountability, something he's unsure will ever come. The International Criminal Court should actually be involved. The ICC should be involved. I don't even have faith in my entire fucking uh, political spectrum. Not only the, the, like, the judicial thing. I don't have faith in the local. Who's going to, like, the same people who actually blew me up are going to actually hold a trial and... They're not going to get uh, convict the right people here. While there is much anger, frustration, and lack of trust, Gina, the reporter for Al Hura TV in Lebanon, says that there's hope. The majority of the Lebanese public opinion is hopeful that the government will keep its promises for reforms, but most people have already left the country due to worsening financial circumstances and, of course, as you said, because many of them have lost their jobs. We also talked about destroyed homes from the explosion, but there were also tens of international businesses that had offices in Lebanon and just closed them and left the country because of the financial crisis. And then, because of the port explosion, there were hundreds and thousands of workers who lost their jobs and chose to leave the country and immigrate. Evidence for this lies in recent reports by organizations that indicate immigration in Lebanon is sharply increasing and numbers are scary. There are still people calling for change, but on a much smaller scale, whether in Martyr Square and Riyadh Salah Square's demonstrations, but not on the same level we used to see two years ago. Gina says moving on from that day has been hard. Beirut's port explosion leaves a deep wound in my heart. In the early days after the explosion, the scenes I saw haunted me every time I sat down or had a moment to think. I was recalling them all. For a long time, I was recalling all the scenes I saw. A year and a half later, I no longer recall those scenes, but I had a special coverage uh, later for the channel I work for, where I interviewed some guests, and all of it came back. A year and a half later, they all came back. It was really one of the hardest, saddest, and worst coverages I have ever done. The Beirut explosion on August 4th, 2020, was a devastating tragedy that could have been avoided. Investigations are underway, but many still feel justice might be hard to come by, along with any accountability for those responsible for this devastating tragedy. Thank you for joining me this week. Global News What Happened To is written and produced by me, Eric Avella, with producer Dila Velezquez. Our audio producer is Rob Johnson. A special thanks goes to Ruby Dagar for her help on this episode. Also, thanks goes to Zara Al-Akras for lending her voice in the translations. 
Also, thanks goes out to Drew Hasselbeck, supervising national online journalist for Global News. Let us know what you thought of this episode and please share it with a friend. It will help us continue to grow the show and bring you more incredible stories. You can also help us out by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also reach out to me personally. We are always looking for stories, so if there's a new story you want us to revisit, you can reach me on Twitter at Erica Vella or email me at erica.vella at globalnews.ca. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time on What Happened To.